how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Zechariah, part one. I'm going to begin our study of Zechariah by reading a few verses from chapter eight. You may be surprised at this. The Lord of Heaven's armies says, get on with the job and finish it. You've been listening long enough. For since you began laying the foundation of the temple, the prophets have been telling you about the blessings that await you when it's finished. Before the work began, there were no jobs, no wages, no security. If you left the city, there was no assurance you would ever return, for crime was rampant. But it is all so different now, says the Lord of Heaven's armies, for I am sowing peace and prosperity among you. Your crops will prosper, the grapevines will be weighted down with fruit, the ground will be fertile with plenty of rain, and all these blessings will be given to the people left in the land. May you be as poor as Judah, the heathen used to say to those they cursed, but no longer, for now Judah is a word of blessing not a curse. May you be as prosperous and happy as Judah is, they'll say. So don't get afraid or discouraged. Get on with rebuilding the temple. Now I read that because that could have been Haggai speaking. That's exactly the message of Haggai. And Haggai and Zechariah overlapped <clears throat> by one month. And uh, Zechariah began exactly where Haggai left off. And uh, so that's why I read it. Now, if Haggai is one of the easiest of the minor prophets to understand, then Zechariah is absolutely the hardest. If you've read it through before this uh, talk, you, well, I hope you could teach me a bit about it, but it really is a very confusing and puzzling book. There are many differences between Haggai and Zechariah in spite of the similarity I've pointed out. There are three, in fact. One, Zechariah was later than Haggai. Not much. They did overlap by a month, but then Zechariah went on much longer. It was like a relay race, as if Haggai passed the token on to Zechariah, who then ran with it, but he ran very much further. So secondly, it is much longer than Haggai. Twelve chapters and uh, 11 pages instead of just a couple. And thirdly, he did go on at least for two years, and uh, that gave him much more revelation to share. But the biggest difference is that Zechariah looked into the far distant future. Haggai dealt with the present and the immediate problems and the immediate future. But Haggai seemed to be able to look far forward, right to the end of time altogether. And uh, some of his more immediate future predictions are all bundled up with some of his very distant future predictions, and that leaves us in confusion. Which time is he talking about? And we'll have to try and sort that out a bit. There is more poetry in Zechariah than Haggai, just a bit more as we'll see, but above all, this is what we call an apocalyptic book. 
That's still prophecy, but it's a particular kind of prophecy that's different from the other kind. It's a, a prophecy that is more in pictures than in words, more in visions than in verbal form, more for the eye than the ear. And so apocalyptic prophecies are full of symbols, weird pictures, animals play quite a large part in apocalyptic prophecy. And above all, angels come into the picture in apocalyptic prophecy. They don't normally. And there are angels who show people the pictures and then explain the pictures to them. Now, what does all this remind you of? The book of Revelation. It also reminds you of the second half of the book of Daniel, which is also apocalyptic, and a few parts of the prophet Ezekiel. Do you remember Ezekiel saw great big wheels with eyes all round the rim and wheels within wheels like a sort of gyroscope rushing here and there around the sky? That's all what we call apocalyptic prophecy. The reason why it comes in this strange form is very simple. It's very difficult to imagine the distant future. You can imagine the near future quite easily because that's just simply the present trends being worked out. But, you know, how would you describe life today to somebody living a thousand years ago? How would you describe television to them? They would have little or no understanding. The only way you can describe the distant future to people is to try and give it in the form of a picture or a symbol and then explain the symbol to them. So we're dealing in Zechariah with a very different kind of prophecy. So we have horses of different colours plus riders. We have horns and blacksmiths. We have stones with seven eyes on each stone. We have measuring lines and olive trees and candlesticks, women in baskets and women's with, women with stalks, wings and flying scrolls. Now, all this kind of thing is so strange and rather difficult for us. We're down-to-earth, matter-of-fact people and we understand people who call a spade a spade. We understand Haggai very easily. He says, get on with the job, finish the temple, and God will bless you. Well, now, who needs any explanation of that? But Zechariah's a different kettle of fish. So, let's look first at the prophet. His name means God remembers. And that's quite significant. God remembers. But it's a very common name in the Old Testament. I've counted 29 people called Zechariah in the Old Testament very common name. He was a priest and that also is very significant. Here we've got a priest who is also a prophet. Now I told you that two out of 15 people coming back from Babylon were priests. It was a religious return. They, the people came back purely to re-establish God's name in Jerusalem. They certainly didn't come back because the land was going to be more fertile or because trading would be better. They came back for spiritual reasons and so a high number of priests returned. And there are two extraordinary developments now which Zechariah highlights. The first development is that now priests are going to replace prophets. For the next 400 years there are going to be no prophets, just priests. And Zechariah, being a priest and a prophet, marks a kind of transition. And he predicts that there will come a day when nobody will claim to be a prophet. They'll say, I'm not a prophet, don't call me a prophet. And the priest is replacing the prophet. The second startling development 
is that the priests are going to take over from the kings as leaders. And one of the things that Zechariah will do as an acted symbol is to make a crown of silver and gold and put it on the head not of Zerubbabel, who is the prince of the royal line of David, but on Joshua the priest. Now that is an extraordinary development. And for the first time in Israel's history, the office of priest and king will be united. That has only happened once before in the Old Testament, way back in the book of Genesis, a man called Melchizedek, who was the king of Jerusalem before the Jews got it, and who was a priest as well as a king, and who we know from the New Testament is the line from which Jesus comes. He is of the order of Melchizedek, not of Levi. He is a priest and a king and a prophet, of course. So Zechariah marks a kind of fusing of these three offices, these three positions of leadership. So the priest is taking over from the prophet and the priest is taking over from the king. And by the time Jesus came, there were only priests. John the Baptist was the first prophet they would get after 400 years. But the leaders, the rulers, were two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. So Zechariah is a very significant book in marking this transition. If you remember over 2,000 years of Israel's history from Abraham to Jesus, you can divide the 2,000 very neatly into four quarters of 500. During the first 500, from 2000 to 1500, they were led by patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. During the next 500 years, from 1500 to 1000, they were led by prophets from Moses to Samuel. From 1000 to 500 BC, they were led by kings or princes. But from 500 to nothing, they were led by priests. And so God had given them a sample of every kind of leadership and I'm afraid every kind of leadership failed Israel. What they needed was one leader who would combine all these officers in one and that's what they would get with Jesus. But can you see how the Old Testament prepares the people for the right leader? By showing them first patriarchs, fatherly figures, then prophets, men who spoke from God, then princes who reigned on a throne and then priests who interceded for them before God. Well now, let's look at the outline of Zechariah. It very neatly divides into two halves. Uh, we're going to look in great detail at these two halves, the first half in this talk and the second half in the next talk. And uh, the first half is pretty well like Haggai except that he uses this apocalyptic way of giving his message because that's how he received it from God. He received it in pictures so he passes it on. But the whole of chapters 1 to 8 are concerned with the situation as it is now and that's why like Haggai he dated his prophecies. The first one he forgot to put the day in but he did give us the month and the year and then the next was... Uh, three months later and the next was two years later. But just like Haggai, he dates his prophecy and they fit exactly into the situation on that date. 
So he's just carrying on the work of Haggai. I don't know why Haggai stopped prophesying or why God sent someone else to carry on. Maybe Haggai died or well, was taken ill and couldn't continue, but Zechariah took over just a month before Haggai finished and simply carried on. So we have it very clearly divided and the first half divides very clearly again into three separate times of prophesying, each dated, so we can look at each as a unit, as a sermon that he preached to the people of God. Remember, they're still building the temple, it's not finished yet, but they have listened to Haggai. The one striking thing about the prophets who came after the exile is that the people listened to them and did what they told them. Well, if you'd been 70 years away from home and you got home, you'd pay much more attention to prophets then, wouldn't you? And indeed, Zechariah begins a month before Haggai ended with quite a pointed sermon. All he did was remind them of the past and he reminded them about their predecessors, their forefathers in the same land. And he said it was precisely because your forefathers wouldn't listen to the prophets that the exile happened. A very timely reminder. We don't need to say too much about this. He just rebukes them and says, now you be jolly careful to listen to the prophets because your fathers didn't and they erred and went wrong and God had given them many prophets to tell them what to do and they wouldn't listen and that's why they went into exile. So you better listen now to what we tell you. That's the summary of his sermon as you read it through. Very simple sermon. What he's saying is, your forefathers not only knew they were doing wrong, but they were told they were doing wrong. They had no excuse whatever. Don't make the same mistake. He's almost telling them, now you do what Haggai has told you or you'll be in trouble too. Then he stopped preaching for three months or yes, nearly three months. And then he started again and this time a very unusual sort of approach. He gave them eight pictures which had all come to him in the night but not as dreams. They'd come as visions. The difference between a vision and a dream is you're awake when you see a vision, you're asleep when you dream a dream. I'm much happier receiving visions than dreams because it says your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. So I want to stay in the vision phase as long as possible. But a vision is a kind of picture that comes to your mind that has a message in it. And more and more people today are experiencing visions, though they do need testing. You get all kinds of weird ones like seeing jellyfish with daggers through them and you know, the kind of thing, and you wonder what they are. I was in one place where somebody got up after I'd spoken for an hour. I preached for an hour and the vicar said, has anybody got a word from the Lord? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't tell you where it happened because you'd know the church and you'd know the vicar, but uh, a man got up, he said, I see a lot of bicycles and they, they, none of them have got chains on connecting the pedals to the wheels. And he said, I don't know what it means. And the dear vicar said, has anybody got the, the interpretation? And nobody had. <laughs> and it went on from there. After you've preached your heart out for now and somebody says, has anybody got a word from the Lord? <laughs> you, re you really do wonder. But we do need such pictures. And such pictures, if they're from God, have a real thrust in them. And visions come during the day. 
uh, when we were awake, but these came through the night and it says God had to keep waking him up to give him the next one. Isn't that interesting? He kept dropping off to sleep. Wake up, wake up, I've got another vision for you. So God was not bothering with dreams. Maybe Zechariah was young enough to have visions. Well now, the eight visions or pictures seem quite unconnected with each other, but when you look at them carefully, they are addressed, let me get my pointer out again, they're addressed to the situation of the rebuilding of the temple, the first two, then the rebuilding of the city, then the next two concentrate on the two leaders, Joshua and Zerubbabel, and the last three concentrate on the condition of the people so that the pictures are terribly relevant. And if at first sight they seem a bit obscure, when you pray them through and look at them carefully, they were very relevant pictures to what was going on right then, to the present problems of the people. And then finally, uh, this time he finished sharing these eight pictures by saying, now we're going to have a coronation. And they had this uh, action a symbolic action in which the priest, Joshua, was crowned king instead of Zerubbabel, the prince of the royal line of David. And that was his second sermon. All right, let's just go through these cryptic pictures. But if you underline your Bible, I want you to underline the refrain that keeps coming all the way through. We'll find it in the second half of Zechariah 2. The refrain is, then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. And what he's saying is this, the test of a prophet is whether what he says happens, whether what he forecasts and predicts comes true. And in fact, there is one of the laws of Moses that if a prophet says something's going to happen and it doesn't, you stone that prophet, he's false. That should make anybody hesitate before they make a prediction about the future. Fortunately, we're not under the law of Moses, but we do have false prophets around. And it's very important that they are tested and that when they say this is going to happen and it doesn't, then they should be rebuked. So he says, I'm predicting certain things here and when they happen, then you will know that the Lord Almighty sent me to you. All right? So let's go through the pictures. The first one is a four horsemen among myrtle trees. Two red horses, one brown or bay and one white, with riders on them. They are God's press reporters. That's the explanation the angel gives. These are messengers of God who ride through the earth and report back to God and tell him what's happening. So we see them as reporters. Uh, if it had been a vision today, they'd have been on motorbikes, but of course they're on horses because that's the day when they got around on horses. And so these are God's reporters reporting back to God. And they are all reporting there is peace in the whole earth. And that was precisely the situation. Because Cyrus had defeated Babylon and Cyrus was a man of peace, the whole earth was at peace. There were no wars anywhere. And what uh, Zechariah is really saying is take this opportunity when you won't find yourselves fighting battles out there to get this whole city rebuilt, to get the temple completed. Don't settle back, but use this window of opportunity to get the job done. 
before you find yourselves having to send soldiers out and fight another war, or find yourselves invaded by someone else. I'm afraid not very long after they were invaded by others, by Egyptians, by Syrians, by Greeks and Romans. But there's a window of peace here when they could get on and rebuild. And really it's saying God has given this window of peace, this short time of peace, so that they're not distracted from the job that's in hand. That's the meaning of the first little picture. I can't go through every detail in the picture, but uh, he also adds that he is angry with those who uh, took them away and with those who've treated them badly, and he's going to deal with them, but not yet. There's going to be this time of peace when God doesn't send war to any nation. Second, four horns and blacksmiths. Now, I understand this. Uh, Zechariah must have been a farmer of some kind. There are many agricultural pictures here. And I used to dehorn, there's a big spider, there, I used to dehorn uh, Ayrshire bulls. I don't know if you know Ayrshire cows, they're usually brown and white and they have horns like that. Very spectacular. But uh, they were very dangerous. I still have a mark behind my ear where one of them caught me. And I looked after about 15 bulls, Ayrshire bulls. And I tell you, you treat them with respect. <laughs> I even had to put rings in their noses. That's quite an experience. But you've got to get that in or you'll never be able to control them later. But because those horns were so dangerous, they could smash fences with them, they could certainly deal with you, the practice of dehorning cattle came in. And when they were quite young, we had to take the horns off them. We actually burnt them off or filed them off, cut them off various ways. And you need strong instruments to do it. That's the picture he sees here. He sees four blacksmiths dehorning. Now, all through apocalyptic prophecy, a horn is a symbol of the strength of uh, an army. A horn is an aggressive weapon. And uh, therefore, he now sees a picture of dehorning going on in the four corners of the earth, that God is dehorning the aggressors. He's taken away the horn of Babylon already. Babylon is no longer a threat. And it just says God is going to dehorn the nations that have threatened them for a time. So we've got a picture here of peace and the enemies dehorned so they can get on with building the temple and put all their resources into that. Then we have a man with a measuring line and now the attention shifts to the city of Jerusalem and they see the man measuring out for the walls. And actually Zechariah realizes the city is going to be far too small, that eventually the city will outgrow the walls. Now Jeremiah had predicted this and it's fascinating. I've got a series of maps of Jerusalem all through the ages of where it was when it was first this little city of David and how it expanded and stretched. And Jeremiah has exactly predicted the extension of the city of Jerusalem today and the direction of it and where the suburbs would be. Now, of course, the problem with a rapidly expanding city is how do you defend it? Because as soon as you make walls, the inside the walls gets more and more crowded. You go to York and see the shambles and see how in the medieval cities they got more and more crowded because it was only safe to live inside the wall. But Jerusalem was going to be far too small. The man with the measuring line says, 
that's going to be too small for all the people who will come and live here. And then there's a lovely promise given. God says, I will be the wall. I will be the wall. You won't need a wall when the city expands. I will defend it. The next uh, little picture, by the way, there is a lovely phrase in that. It says, God says, whoever touches my people touches the apple of my eye. Now, again, there's a text that most preachers misunderstand. It doesn't mean a Cox's orange pippin in the hand. The apple of the eye is the iris of the eye. You look in a mirror and you'll see that middle bit looks just like an apple on end with the stalk in the middle. You know the little, the iris with the lines on it? Well, you take an apple and look at the stalk end and you'll see the iris of an eye. That's what the apple of the eye means. It is the most sensitive part of your body. And as soon as even a speck of dust touches it, your eyelid slams down. And the eyelid in Scripture is called the keeper. That's the Hebrew word for eyelid. The keeper of the eye slams down to protect that very sensitive part of your body. In fact, um, my wife and I have much reason to think of this. Psalm 121 was given to her and me when she developed cancer in her eye. And uh, it was very serious. Malignant melanoma running through and surgeon told us she'd have to remove half her face probably, which I couldn't cope with. I'd rather she were in heaven with a whole face than living down here with half one. But um, the Lord had mercy on us and here she is with no trace of it, whatever. But it was in the iris, the apple of her eye. And when I read Psalm 121, which I preached on when she was taken away to a hospital, it said, the Lord is my keeper, my eyelid. He slams down as soon as anything touches his people. It's a wonderful picture. And uh, that was the scripture that took us both through and she was given the promise by her nurse, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. And ten days later I drove her away from the hospital without a bandage on and we went and climbed the Canadian Rockies together. <laughs> she lifted up her eyes to the hills. But uh, the Lord is the keeper, he's the eyelid and his people are the iris of his eye. In other words, my people, says the Lord, are the most sensitive part of me. You touch them and you touch me. Jesus was to say, and as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you do it to me. It's the same principle. God's people are the most sensitive part of God. <laughs> the Living Bible puts it, um, something like this, it says, whoever touches my people sticks his finger in the Lord's eye. That's vividly put. Can you imagine it? It's a wonderful picture. And once again, the refrain keeps coming, then you will know. Now, what he's saying is this, the nations that have touched you, I'm going to deal with. And then he says another lovely thing about other nations. He said, but some of the other nations are going to join you. They're going to become part of you. Here are two predictions about Gentile nations. One, those that attack Israel have God to face. Two, many of those Gentiles will become part of Israel. Then you will know, it comes for both. When I touch those who've touched Israel, you will know. And when Gentiles join you, then you will know. And both things have happened. 
history has proof that the God of Israel exists. It was the philosopher Heidegger who was asked by the Emperor Frederick of Prussia, give me one proof of the existence of God. And the philosopher Heidegger simply said, your majesty, the Jews, their history is proof. Then you will know whoever has dared to attack Israel pays for it sooner or later. And yet other nations like us have joined Israel and been grafted into their fruit tree. So we know this morning that God sent Zechariah. <laughs> We've got proof. We're here. We're in the olive tree. And that prophecy came true. Let's move on quickly. Joshua's change of clothes. He's now looking at the leadership they've got. The prince, Zerubbabel, and the priest, Joshua. What's going to happen now? Well, the first thing is that Satan comes into the picture. Do you know, the devil hardly ever appears in the Old Testament. Have you ever noticed that? I can only think of Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, and uh, what else? At the end of Chronicles, when he tempted David to number Israel, and Job, he appears, and here. And I think that's about all. If you think of another, let me know. But uh, you can count on one hand the number of times the devil takes any part in Old Testament history. Now, of course, he's behind an awful lot of things. But he becomes far more prominent when Jesus arrived. Because, frankly, the devil was quite happy to be incognito in the Old Testament. He was ruling the world. He'd got the whole human race in his hand. And uh, his cleverest trick is to play dead so that people don't think he's around. He just carries on controlling everything. But he does appear here. It's as if when he saw the Jews coming back and he knew that from them and in that country would come the saviour of the world, he just had to try and do something. Whenever something really significant is going to happen, the devil tries to stop it happening. And that is why he tried to kill every male Jew in Egypt so that Moses would never be born and the people would never get out of Egypt. And that is why he killed all the babies at Bethlehem when Jesus was born because he didn't want that baby to grow up and do another Moses for his people. See, once you know the devil's devices, you can spot him. But here he is and he says, you can't have Joshua to lead you. He's a dirty man. And, so, and Zechariah saw Joshua standing in filthy clothes and realized the devil was right. Now, the devil does seem to have the function of the counsel for the prosecution in heaven. I mean, in Job, he's there in heaven, in the counsel of God, criticizing people on earth, accusing them. He is the slanderer. He is the accuser. And here he says, you can't have Joshua. His past is sinful. He was one of those who was sinning that led to the exile, which means he was probably quite elderly. He said, you can't have him. And then in the vision, Zechariah hears that Joshua is like a brand plucked from the burning, like a half-burnt stick pulled out of the fire. Words which years later were used of John Wesley as a little boy of ten when the rectory in Epworth in Lincolnshire caught fire and he was trapped in an attic and men stood on each other's shoulders and rescued the boy, John Wesley, from the fire. What would have happened had he died? See, 
England would have gone the same way as the French Revolution probably. And Wesley lived by these words of Zechariah for the rest of his life. He said, I'm a brand plucked from the burning. I've been rescued from the Holocaust. And that's how Joshua was seen by God. He's a brand plucked from the burning. He's a stick pulled out of the fire. I've saved him. And then in the vision, the angels come and they take the dirty clothes off and they clothe him in clean clothes, put a clean turban on his head, and the man is clean in God's sight and can be a priest. It's a beautiful picture. And he saw that by God's grace, Joshua, in spite of having shared in the sins of his people earlier, was now clean in God's sight and could be the priest. And God makes a promise that what he'd done for this one Jew, he will one do, day do for the whole nation. He said, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. God can clean a person up, make him a priest. And there's another little promise there. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and his fig tree. Words which recall Jesus finding Nathaniel, I saw you under your fig tree. Well, there are so many meanings here, hidden meanings that are picked up in the New Testament and that show you how rich were these pictures that God was giving Zechariah. Let's look at the next. He now sees a gold lampstand. You know the seven-branch golden lampstand in the temple? He sees that, but he sees a vessel higher than the lamp with a tube running down into the lamp. And he realizes the vessel is full of oil and that nobody will never ever need to replenish the oil in the lamps because there's a reservoir of oil just flowing through the lampstand. What's all this about? This is about Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is seen as someone who has a reservoir of the Holy Spirit pouring through him. The oil, of course, is always a symbol of God's Holy Spirit. That's why the word anointing is used when the Holy Spirit comes on someone. Anointing with oil. Our queen was anointed with oil when she was crowned. It's called the chrism, that little bit of the ceremony, because chrism or Christ means anointing. Same word. And so Zerubbabel is God's anointed. And the word for anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach or Messiah as we call it, but it's really Mashiach, God's anointed one. It's a royal sign. But then comes a text that again has been quoted by so many, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Boy, that becomes a motto for so many things. What does it mean? Not by might means not by military might. Not by power means not by political power. In other words, the royal line of David must achieve what it achieves, not by having an army, not by gaining political authority, but by the Spirit. And when Jesus came from that royal line, he did not have an army. He said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, else would my servants fight. What a tragedy that the church ever got that wrong and the crusades happened. You cannot establish the kingdom of God by military or political power. You can only do it by my spirit. But the proof that this uh, power was given 
to Zerubbabel is a most unusual thing which you may have missed as you read it. It's this. When they got the temple to the top, the topping out ceremony it's called today and builders used to put a little flag up when they got to the top, there is the, the capstone, the last stone to go on a gable that joins the two sides as they've been built up. The last stone to go in is the capstone and it says that Zerubbabel would actually lift that capstone into place with his hands. It's a, usually quite a heavy stone and he would actually carry it and this would be proof to the people. There's the refrain again. When he lifts that stone and climbs up the scaffolding and up the ladders carrying the stone and puts it in place, single-handed, with no aid, no ropes, no pulleys, just carrying it up and puts it in place, then you will know that I, the Almighty Lord, have sent my prophet to you. Can you get the scene? <laughs> Everybody say, he'll never lift that. Not by might, nor by power, but by might. That's how Samson carried the gates of the Philistine city away. And now the same Holy Spirit is giving Zerubbabel the power to lift that big stone and get it up. It's like lifting one of your lorries to get the wheel changed. And he lifts the stone and he pops it, the last stone of the temple. Which meant that uh, that generation would live to see the temple complete. Exciting little picture, isn't it? And sometimes we sort of miss these little touches. But he said, how do you know that the kingdom will be built not by political or military might, but by the Spirit. Well, when you, says Zerubbabel, pop the stone in place, then you will know. I'm getting all excited about this, but see, I'm supposed to be a teacher, but I find myself preaching. <laughs> the next thing, he sees um, two olive trees, and of course these stand for Zerubbabel and Joshua. There is to be a dual kind of leadership. And in fact, sorry, I've jumped, haven't I? Um, no? Uh, the lampstand, really, it says the Spirit will go to both of them because there are two olive trees. And the oil comes from olive trees. And so you've got two anointed leaders here. They're going to need both. So rubber bell is necessary to the future, though not as a king. You see, they can't have a king. I have the feeling it's because they couldn't have a king in Persia that uh, they thought, well, if we crown the priest, they can't object. We'll call him priest when he's really our king. I think maybe it was a device to avoid trouble with the Persian Empire. Nevertheless, this is what happened. The temple will be completed in their lifetime and then they will know. Who has despised the day of small things, said Haggai, but now it's going to be completed and the temple will be there. And the last one, no, second last, is the flying scroll. And here on the scroll, which is 10 by 5 meters, it's a great big scroll, 10 meters by 5 meters, flying through the air over the land. And on it is written curses on all who steal and lie. And it's going over the homes of all the people. And whenever it comes over the house of someone who's stealing or lying, a curse drops from the scroll on the house and the house is destroyed. And this is the next picture, he said. Now we're turning to the people. And he's, 
What Zechariah is saying very simply is uh, some of you are stealing and lying. And he says, I see this scroll floating over your houses and it's going to drop a curse on whichever house has stolen property in it or been telling lies. Boy, that must have shaken the people up a bit and got them cleaned up. Because still there's this moral concern underneath it all. And where there was no repentance, he did say, if the scroll stops over your house, repent and the curse won't come. But uh, if you don't repent, the curse will drop. And finally he sees, no, not finally, he sees a woman in a measuring basket, a 35-litre basket, that's quite big. And there's a woman in it, she's a horrible woman. Looks a bit like a prostitute, actually. And two more women with stork's wings come flying down and they pick up the basket in their beaks, or however, maybe with their arms, and they picked up the basket with the other woman in it and they flew away to the east. What's all this? It's a picture of God taking sins away, taking their sins away to Babylon. That's the direction. Saying, I took you sinners away there, no, I want to take your sin away there because that's where it belongs. Babylon is the place of sin. And it's a picture of the sins being removed, taken away. Finally, the picture of four chariots, red, black, white, and dappled gray horses. And uh, they go out throughout the whole earth and now these horses with chariots are going out all over the world to do God's will. They've already finished their work in the north in Babylon, so that chariot is having a rest, a holiday. But the other three go out and they go everywhere in the world, God's agents to do his will. God has a worldwide control of history. His agents can be sent anywhere speedily. That's the, mean, the method, uh, message of the chariot. They can go anywhere he sends them to do his will. That completes the pictures for that night. I'll just go on to the fourth. I think I have just two minutes, have I? Yes. Uh, it's at that point that three wise men arrive from Babylon. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> that happened again centuries later. But three of the wise men who were merchants, traders, came from Babylon and they brought a load of silver and gold as a gift for the temple. But Zechariah was told to take some of it and make a crown and then have a coronation in the temple of Joshua. Then you will know that I am the Lord. There's the refrain again. But this is a crucial point. First time, as I said earlier, that priest and king were ever united in Israel. They had been united in Jerusalem long before the Jews took it, in the days of Melchizedek. But now the order of Melchizedek is being reestablished. The prince is the king, is the priest, and the two are combined. But there is an if in all this. You should always notice the word if, and the word if is, if my people diligently obey. If. God is saying, I'm giving you a king again, but not from the royal line of David this time. I'm giving you a king so that you are a kingdom, but it's the priest so that Persia won't be upset about you having a king. You can always say, well, he's just our priest. We, we crown our priests. It's a neat device to encourage them to be the kingdom of Israel again, and yet it's not the true fulfillment 
of the promises of the Mashiach yet. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.